let's stand for the reading of the word. A psalm fitting for the current moment in history that we're living in. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord God, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to your word. Wonderful passage, Lord God, great revelation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Lord God, a a word here, Lord God, that calls us uh, to live in hope. Lord God, a word that calls us here to live in intimacy with you. And a word that calls us to live, Lord God, trusting you every day. Jesus, I pray, Lord God, that you'd minister to all here. We sit at your feet. We look into your eyes. We want to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, we pray this. Amen. So what you have here in this psalm is a revelation of the Trinity. I don't know how many of you see it there, but when you go through the Scriptures, like most people when it comes to the Trinity, they'll look at the Trinitarian verses. A lot of Trinitarian verses in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 28, 19, that we are to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a number of places where the Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinitarian, okay, nature of God is revealed. But to understand throughout the scriptures, especially again, you have a much greater revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament, the Old Testament, but the Trinity is revealed in the Old Testament, as I'm going to show you here tonight. The Father is revealed, the Son is revealed, and the Holy Spirit is revealed, and you see that. But in the New Testament, you have a clear picture of the Trinity, and you know, this little illustration, this is a wonderful illustration that, um, I don't know who did it, but it really, it really shows the picture of the Trinity and to be able to understand it. So the Father... Okay, and you'll notice here is not the Son. They're, they're distinct personas. They're distinct personalities. Okay? And the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Again, distinct persona. Personality. What makes personality? Right? You have a personality. What makes for a personality? Let me give you a will, intelligence, and emotion. Okay? A will, intelligence, and emotion. So you, you, the father has a, a, a distinct will, emotion, and again, intelligence, as the son does, as the spirit does. So they're not, right, they're not the same persons, but they are all God. And they all have the same God nature. So we use a very feeble illustration, teaching the kids this in Sunday school, you know, we use the egg. It's, it's really, an, it's not a good illustration. Um, it, actually, it actually leads, 
it could lead to heresy, but it, it gives us a picture of the concept of there be, being diversity and unity. So you have an egg, you have the white, you have the yolk, and you have the shell. You have one egg, but you have three distinct parts. Even a better illustration is H2O, which when you were in eighth grade in, uh, in science class, I think it was called earth science when I was going to school, they basically they took a, um, a beacon, a little, a little tube, Right? They, lit it up. they lit it on fire at the bottom, put water in it, H2O in it, and then they put dry ice at the top, and simultaneously in a moment, it became ice, okay, solid, liquid, and then vapor, steam. So again, you, you had H2O, the chemical composition never changed, whether it was ice or vapor or liquid, but you have three different substances. Okay, again, it's not quite good for God because, I mean, it was so much deeper and, and more complex. But again, the Father, Son, and Spirit. We have three personas in the Godhead, okay? But essentially one God. Now again, in, in the New Testament, that revelation, you see the Holy Spirit. He feels, he thinks, and he wills. And the same goes for the Father and the same goes for the Son. You come to the Old Testament... And there are, again, numerous places where you see the revelation of the Father, Son, and Spirit. In Psalm 2, you will see, and I will show you this tonight, you will see the Father speaking, the Spirit speaking, and the Son speaking. This is really cool. I don't know if you've ever, has anybody here ever noticed this in, uh, in Psalm 2? And most people have not. So, first I want to share, I'll share with you, and just very quickly, the Spirit speaks. I'm going to give you just a quick overview, and then I'm going to go into, I'm going to go into detail. So the, the Spirit, thank you, hon. The Spirit speaks, and um, in verses uh, 1 through 4, this is the Holy Spirit now speaking. Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and uh, he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Now, you know, how do we know that the Holy Spirit is speaking? Because you clearly see as we go on, you see the Father, and then you see the Son. Okay? The second is the Father speaks in verses 5 through 6. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And that's the Father setting the Messiah, Jesus, the king, right, on Mount Zion. And then you have the Son speaking, okay, in verses 7 through 9. I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. I mean, obviously, that is Jesus speaking. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The psalm ends up with the Holy Spirit again speaking, okay, and he gives this exhortation here in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, and be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled. But a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. 
That's the Holy Spirit calling us. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit is the one who draws us. The Spirit is the one who calls us. The Spirit is the one who convicts us. And the Spirit is the one who reveals Jesus to us. If you are a Christian, you're here tonight, the reason you're here is because the Holy Spirit has revealed the Son to you. There may be people out there who have no idea. I mean... No, I mean, this is, we are in, we're in a post-Christian era in the United States. Post, you know, it was much more of a Christian influence. By the way, people say America is a Christian country. There's no such thing as a Christian country. But America had a tremendous Christian influence years ago. Some of you grew up, you remember, things used to be quite different. The way people, and you see things crazy now, right? The way, and there's just, people have, there's no civility no civility. I mean, if they're, not, if they're not stabbing and beating and killing somebody, just the way people talk to, you know, to each other. But there was a time where, where things were, for the most part, they were quite different. We're in a post-Christian era. But when you talk to people, I mean, they have like, they just no idea of Jesus. And that's because Jesus has not been revealed uh, to their hearts. And I believe there's something that has to be happening in a heart with humility for that, you know, for that to truly happen. So I could stop right there and just say to you, you know what, take Psalm 2, meditate on it. It's absolutely wonderful because you're going to stop and you're going to look again. The Spirit speak. I don't know, that excites me when I, when I read this and I discovered that the Spirit speaking, the Father speaking, the Son speaking. But I'll go into a little detail with you about it, okay? So verses 1 through 4. The Spirit, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in heavens, he laughs. He laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure. So, what you see in, in, in verses 1 through uh, 3 is rebellion. I want to give you a word. This is a Luciferian rebellion. <laughs> in fact, all rebellion, really, against God is Luciferian. It's led by Lucifer. It's led by, by Satan. Okay, you see all, all the rebellion that you, you know, that you see in the world. The abortion. The murder of God's creation what he has created in his image and likeness. Infanticide. And you even have, what was it, the past governor of Virginia, and um, it was actually Cuomo in New York talking about the baby could be born out of the womb and it could be killed if you don't want it. And this is something that has been heavily practiced in pagan cultures, India, China, Rome. Um, In fact, in Rome, I'll, I'll share this with you. In Rome, when children were born who were not wanted... And for the most part, they were female children. Because in, a, in an agricultural society, men are worth more than women. So when those children were born, the parents didn't have the heart to drive a, you know, a knife or a spear to the little child's heart. They would take them and they would put this, them on this wall above the river. And then the little babies would basically you know, walk or crawl or fall off the wall into the river and drown. And the Christians were rescuing. It was an operation rescue. And they would come in boats and they would basically scale the walls and rescue the children. 
And the Romans opposed it, so they put soldiers up there and they would throw spears and kill the Christians while they were trying to save the babies. But that's a, there's a picture of an Operation Rescue, you know, these, the, these pro-life centers that we support here, that, you know, a mother will go in, she says, you know what, I don't have the money to be able to keep this baby, but they say, okay, we'll take you in, we'll support you, we'll help you to get a job, we're going to provide the diapers and the food and everything we can for It's an Operation Rescue. What were they doing? They're burning them down now. So you look, you look again, this is, this is again, these are of Luciferian... Rebellion against the, the, very, the very values, okay, the, the very laws of God. Homosexual marriage, right? What does the scripture teach? That a man shall be married to a woman, a woman to a man. <laughs> By the way, that's, that's been true of history and culture for thousands of years, right? Up until, what was it, 19, uh, 2016, when the Supreme Court it decides that now marriage can be between a man and a man and a woman, you know, woman and a woman. All the gender confusion. Okay, Lucifer, this is Luciferian rebellion. Right? God created them, right, in his image, a man and a woman, right? Two genders, not 477 genders. And again, this, this is Luciferian rebellion. You can see it in injustice, right? We look at our culture now. Evil is called good. Good is called evil. You can go out. You can, I mean, beat somebody. You can stab somebody. You can rob somebody. Even kill somebody. Let you out two days later. If you try to protect yourself against, uh, you know, a, a, a person like that, okay, then you go to jail. <laughs> it's it's just to, total insanity, and you know, just again. But this, the roots of this is it's a Luciferian rebellion. So I said to you last week, if you have a topic that you would like me to preach on, to let me know, two people came to me. So um, I guess you guys are just in a place, you don't have any questions, you know it all, you got it all down. God bless, I'm doing a, I'm doing a, hell of a, a heck of a job here in the church, that, that to be happening. And um, a heaven of a job. But um, Renee... She shot me a, 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 a message that night, and she quoted, Renee, if you're watching tonight, you quoted it from Psalm 16.3, and it's not Psalm 16.3, it's Psalm 11.3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So we're looking right now, I mean, you know, how can you not be, if you're a Christian, you've got the Holy Spirit in you, you're in the Word of God, how can you not be bothered Irritated, frustrated by what you see. It's, it's got to bother. I mean, you got to, to a point, man. Let me tell you, I have to not read the reports and not watch the news. I have to turn it off because it just, it just angers, it angers me with what, with what I'm seeing that's happening right, right in our own backyard, in the local school system, in the towns that we live in. If the foundations are destroyed, the foundations... The foundations that God has laid, Satan is trying to destroy them. So, it, it, so what should we do? Renee says, well, you know, what should we do with this? What should the righteous do? And I, I, look, I'm, I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on this because I can think of many things we can do. But here's just something I want you to notice. Again, right, 
Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Just keep that in mind. God is laughing. Right? And then it says, the Lord shall hold them in derision. Do you know what, what derision means? He mocks them. He's, he's mock, they're, they're trying to undermine and tear down his very foundations. He mocks them. He ridicules them. That's what, that's what God, God is doing. We may be sitting here and saying, geez, you know, folks, it ain't going to last. It ain't going to last. He laughs, he mocks, and then he speaks to them in his wrath. Now, I want you to, to just, verses um, 1 through 4 of Psalm 1, I want to uh, share with you a, kind of a, a narrow picture of, um, of where we see a fulfillment of this, but it gets broader. So watch this. First, in Acts chapter 4, 25 through 27, Peter and John are arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders, okay, Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. And um, notice what, what Peter says. He says, and he quotes from Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 2, who by the mouth of your servant David have said... And this is Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Here are, again, the, the, the people, the nations. This is, again, the kings, Herod, right, Pontius Pilate the Romans, the soldiers, the Sanhedrin, Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes. So the fulfillment, a partial fulfillment, I believe, of what is in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is what was done to Jesus, right? They crucified him. They falsely accused him. They created a, you know, a, a false trial with, with false accusations. They plotted against him. Now, I just want to want you to, to focus because God says, I'm going to pour my wrath out upon these people who are rebelling against, against me, against my will, against my word, against my way, against my son. He says, I'm going, to, I'm going to pour out my wrath on them. And it's interesting because the Herodian dynasty ended. Um, the Romans, you know, a few hundred years later, that came to an end. It's interesting, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that was over when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. No more Sadducees and Pharisees in Israel. There haven't been any in, in, in 2,000 years. God, God did away with them. He did away with them all. It wasn't quite in the timing maybe that we would like, right? We would have liked it done right after the resurrection the next day. But again, God's timing is not our timing, and a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. But God pours out his wrath. And when it comes to the wrath of God, I think a lot of times we think of the wrath of the God, you know, the wrath of God is a famine, the wrath of God is a disease, the wrath of God is a war, the wrath of God is an earthquake. But that's true. You see that. You see that in places in both the Old and New Testament. But there's something more to understand. Romans 1 sheds light on the wrath of God. I want you to notice in verse 18 of Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
So when God is going to pour out his wrath on people, again, these are people who have rebelled against him, they have rejected him, right? They've rejected his son, they've rejected his, his word, they've rejected his law, they've rejected his will. He pours out his wrath. But watch, when you go on in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God, watch this. Therefore God also gave them up. Three times. The word, the word in, the, in, in the Greek, he gave them over. To uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And that's, that's, talk, that's talking about sodomy, homosexuality, lesbianism. In verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even the women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And then in verse 28, and by the way, I think a lot of times Christians, we focus on those, verse 24 and verse 26. If you get to verse 28, it says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. And it talks about lying and stealing and murder and just all these other things. But God, he just, the picture, God just gave up on them. So that's, that's, that's essentially, um, God looks at rebellion, he laughs, and he pours out his wrath. He says, he says, you want to rebel? You want to have it your way? Go ahead. I'm, just, I'm, giving, I'm giving you up to total, you know, total evil, total unrighteousness, and that is the consequence of an individual, of a nation, of a culture that has basically rebelled against God, rejected God, that God just he, he gave them over. He just, he just gives them, he's, you want it, you can have it. And, and how, how dark, how evil, how low can a person go? Man, they can go low! And we see that. We see that in our, you know, in our culture. Now, let me go a little wider. God laughs, and God will defeat the rebellion. So we, we come to the end of the tribulation. Okay, we're now a, a, a bit broader. Seven-year tribulation period. Bible talks about seven years. Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19. Okay, it's, it's hell on earth. I believe the rapture of the church happens before the tribulation. The glorious appearing of Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 16. So it, it tells us, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. By the way, you know who that is? That's us. That's, I believe that's the church. That's the church in glory, and I believe that's the angels. We're all coming back. Like we're gonna come come back, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna we're gonna lay we're gonna we're gonna lay some blows on the devil and the demons. All right, you're all pumped up for this right now. You've been battling him down here. And then in verse 14, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he is on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now watch this. 
in verse, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to skip a couple of verses here, but 19 and 21, and I saw the beast, okay, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together. Notice the audacity to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Here comes the Lord with his army, and here is, here is the Antichrist with his armies of the earth, and they actually direct their weapons at, at Jesus, and then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flash. Right? Now, I want to go a little broader. Do you know that that there's one more rebellion that's spoken about in Scripture? And it's something that, that the Lord comes back, defeats the Antichrist, Satan is locked up for a thousand years, and the Lord sets up his kingdom on earth, the Millennial Kingdom. By the way, there's more written about the Millennial Kingdom in the Old Testament than just about any other topic. It's interesting. I say anything other than the Messiah, any of the prophecies dealing with Jesus. At the end of the Millennial Kingdom... 1,000 years, peace on earth, harmony. They beat their swords into, right, into plowshares and their, you know, their spears into pruning hooks and the, li- uh, uh, the lamb will lie down with the wolf right? and the child will stick their hand into the viper's nest and it won't get stung. There's harmony like it was in the Garden of Eden between man and nature. But at the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan is released. People are like, why does God do that? Because he is now going to give people a choice between Satan and him. Because everything was just so nice and good, and but there are still people whose hearts were not with him in the millennial kingdom. So it, 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 just one more time, one more time, Revelation chapter 27 through 10, now, When a thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And now we go into eternity. There's no more evil, right? There's no more sin. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. There's, there's no more death. That is the word that the Spirit gives to us in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, verses 5 and 6. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. That is the Father. The Father is the one who has set Jesus. Jesus, right, is the king. Right, he is in Revelation nineteen sixteen, right, and on his robe and on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will rule from Zion for a thousand years. By the way, for all eternity, through eternity. But for a thousand years, Jesus will reign, right, in his glorified body from Zion. In fact, he will teach and he will judge 
from Zion. In fact, you want to look at, at Isaiah chapter 9, one of my favorite verses in the entire scripture. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David over his kingdom, he will sit upon the throne of David to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And I believe that's talking about the millennial kingdom. Now, the next word is the word of the Son. So you've had the word of the Spirit, the word of the Father, now the word of the Son. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. Who me? You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. I want you you to notice, you are my son and I have begotten you. See the word begotten? One of the most misunderstood words in the entire Bible when it comes to Jesus. And if you don't understand what it means when the Jehovah Witnesses knock on your door... And maybe you foolishly invite them in. And let me tell you something. Unless you are really well-versed in this, I can invite them in. I've invited them in many times. They've even brought their elder to my house. But then after that, they never come back again. They just walk around my house to the next house. But when, when the Jehovah Witnesses come, they will say, You see, Jesus was begotten. That means he was created. That means that he's not eternally one with the Father. That means there is not a trinity. That means Jesus is not God. But the word, the word begotten, and I'll, I'll go to John 3.16, where, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The word begotten, you want to get this down, what I'm going to say to you. The word is monogenes. M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S, if you're taking Greek and you're putting it into the English, and it's pertaining to basically what it means is one of the same kind. Not talking about a creation. It's, it's one who is essentially of the same kind, unique. Jesus is uniquely God's son. There, there's nobody who is uniquely God's son but Jesus. He's one of the same kind. He is God. Okay, but he is the son. So, so God gave his one and only, really the, a, a great translation. And this is where I think the translators, when they translated monogenes, it goes back to the King James Version in 1611, they translated begotten. I, I don't like it. It's not a good translation. And a lot of other scholars, you know, and I'm not a scholar, but a lot of scholars believe that. The, the word in proper translation, God gave his one and only unique son. That's essentially what it means. So Jesus is God. So when, they, when it comes, well, he's begotten, he was, he was created, right? You know, just take a look at the Greek, my friend. Monogenes. And again, with the passage, what the passage here refers to, again, when Jesus is saying this, him coming and defeating his enemies. Father says, I will give you, I will give you the nations, I will give you the territory of your enemies. I want to show you a, a, a passage, again, a comparative passage in Isaiah chapter 63, 1 through 6. 
and it, it kind of again fits into Revelation chapter 19. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. That's, again, a comparative passage with what we just read in the 19th chapter of Revelation. He comes and he destroys his enemies. He breaks them with a rod of iron and dashes them to pieces like a, a potter's vessel. Now, we go to the Holy Spirit. He's going to give us one more word, okay? In verse 10 through 12. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We have to fear him because he's a consuming fire, because he's holy, because he is a just God, and he will judge. But then notice here the invitation. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all who put their trust in him. Kiss him. It's, you know, I want you to think of a kiss. A kiss is something that is incredibly... And by the way, I'm very careful. I know the Bible says we are to greet each other with a holy kiss. That's one of the things I was thankful for COVID for. We didn't have to have holy kisses. I'm very careful who I kiss. I kiss my wife, I kiss my children, I'll kiss my grandchildren. I know some men here in the church who come from cultures and, you know, I, sometimes the guys will come up and they grab you and they want to kiss me on there and get at it, you know, just like, that's where, like, quick, quick elbow, right? And dro- I'm going to drop, drop them real quick. But I don't want to be kissed, I don't want to be kissed by, even ladies, you know, I mean, it just, you know, in the church we hug the ladies like this, we hug them like this, right? And pretty much just the older sisters, but um, now kiss, it's, it's intimacy. It's an invitation by God to be intimate with him. That's, that's the Christian life. The Christian life is not, it's not religion, folks. It's a relationship. Now, I, was, I was training with a guy who's kind of one of my training partners and, um, last night. And um, we were training with a lot of stuff, and he, he said to me, he goes, you're a pastor. He goes, you're not like any pastor I've ever met. And um, I said, that's good. I, I said, I'm, I don't tell you what, I, what else I said to him, but I said, that's good. But he goes, you're not religious. And I'm not religious. In fact, I, I actually really can say this. I hate religion. But I'm in good company because I believe Jesus did. Who did Jesus have problems with? Who did Jesus suppose? Right? Who, who, who was Jesus in a, you know, just continu- continuous conflict with? Religious people. It was the religious. 
The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious ones. But it's, it's, it's a relationship. And again, it's the invitation. Kiss the son. I'll give you the, the, the Hebrew. Nashakwa bar. Kiss the son. What is it saying? Come and embrace him. Come and have an intimate relationship with him. Know him in his love. Know him in his compassion. Know him in his forgiveness. Know him in his grace. Know his, his intimate voice, his intimate touch upon your heart, upon your soul. You don't want to know him in his wrath, in his judgment, or in his judge, uh, justice. And that's where, again, it, it, the, the whole word here is, right, you got an opportunity. Kiss him. Oh, peoples of the earth, right? fear him because right, you don't want to meet him in his wrath. Kiss him. You don't want to meet him as the lion of Judah. You want to meet him as the lamb of God. And there is, again, a, a revelation of Jesus and the Trinity given to us a thousand years before Jesus came to the earth. Isn't that cool? I just think that's one of the coolest psalms, and I read the psalms every day, and um, I love it. Keep it in your heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, pray a blessing upon us all, Lord God. And Father, I just pray that through your Son, and through knowing Him, through being loved by Him, and by loving Him, Lord, we truly can come to a place where we can experience, Lord God, that relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For we are, Lord God, truly the habitation, the dwelling place of the Holy Trinity. Let us cherish that in our heart in Psalm 2. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.